to come together as people of different faiths, to discuss our own passions, our own commitments, but also our ability to address crises and conflicts in the world today is a very, very special opportunity. Now, I'm already grateful for today because I was introduced as rabbi. I was recently a part of an interfaith uh, activity, and they introduced me as Reverend Shmuley. I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be a reverend, but uh, I'll also take the ordination that I received of rabbi. So, I want to start with a very heavy poem by Yehuda Amichai, who is uh, an Israeli poet, called The Diameter of the Bomb. He writes, the diameter of the bomb was 30 centimeters, and the diameter of its effective range about seven meters, with four dead and 11 wounded. And around these, in a larger circle of pain and time, two hospitals are scattered and one graveyard. But the young woman who was buried in the city she came from at a distance of more than 100 kilometers, enlarges the circle considerably. And the solitary man mourning her death at the distant shores of a country far across the sea includes the entire world in the circle. And I won't even mention the howl of orphans that reaches up to the throne of God and beyond, making a circle with no end and no God. Here, Amichai is addressing the ripple effects of terror, the ripple effects of evil, of war, of pain. That in fact, it might look like there is one place where a bomb lands, but in fact, the ripple effects in human relationships and the destruction of society are enormous. And thus, we have to take small acts of hate and evil and violence very, very seriously. Not to mention those of a much larger scale. And to invoke the name of God to justify violence can never be a sanctification of the name of God, but only a desecration of that name. To act in the name of religion in a manner of hate or a manner of violence is in fact to destroy the very essence of what, of what religion is about. The great 20th century philosophers, Buber, Martin Buber, Emmanuel Levinas, explain that actually God can be found in the encounter of the face of another. It is through human relationships that we actually come to access divinity on high, called the ethics of alterity, the ethics of otherness. But to address conflicts and crises today in the world, we must do so systemically and sustainably. And to do so, I believe we have to embrace intersectionality. Intersectionality in global crises suggests that all of these issues and conflicts are actually deeply interconnected. If we look at issues of foreign policy today, the instability of regions around the world, just to name a few that we know very well, Sudan, Egypt, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, the deep instability, if you look at North Korea, if you look at the crisis today in Syria, where the Assad regime has committed mass murder, I mean, half a million, almost half a million people now over the last five years, innocent people in Syria have been, have been slaughtered. The, by far the greatest global crisis today is the mass slaughter in Syria. If we look at the issues of striving for peace and justice in Israel today, 
If we look at the crisis of environmentalism and climate change and the scarcity of resources and how that contributes to conflict, if we look at the issue of how we get our food today, if we look at the factory farming industry, and actually is it a larger contributor to environmental harm than, uh, than the automotive industry itself, if we look at the level of suffering being imposed upon animals to produce food even cheaper and cheaper, if we look at global poverty in the bottom billion, if we look at homelessness, the, the inability to provide adequate education to everyone around the globe. If we look at the orphan crisis, where we have 160 million children without homes, without parents to raise them, the problems of orphanages, the need for, just in this state itself, for, foster, you know, for fostering children without homes. If we look at those who are dying of organ failure, who actually need not die, because if people simply check the box to be an organ donor after their lives, they could save lives. And the exploitation of the most poor in the world today to take their organs as opposed to all of us stepping up and contributing. Where we need a regulated open market for, for, for organ uh, donation. The persecution of minorities around the world. The lack of women's rights, girls' rights, gay rights. You know, I was recently in Senegal and I uh, was jumping onto a boat. And my shoe tore as I jumped onto this boat. And a young boy, about eight years old, followed me onto the boat and started to repair my shoe. And I said, really, it's OK. In my head, I was going to throw away the shoes when I got home and buy a new pair of shoes. But he starts to repair my shoes. I try to persuade him not to. He's insistent. He sits down to me and starts speaking French. I uh, used to live in France, so I speak a, a bit of French. He told me his name was Mamadou which translates to Muhammad. And he started to explain that he has seven siblings that live in a little room, and his parents are sick and can't work. And so he sustains his seven siblings by finding Westerners who travel to his country and tear their shoe, and he helps to repair them to make the money to feed his parents and his siblings. I keep Mamadou in my consciousness because it's very easy to stay within our comfortable small city, our realm of comfort and forget the level of suffering that could be happening in the world. I was recently in Thailand, and I met another large family who lived in a little hut. And every day of the year, literally every day, even the rainy days, they work their rice field. And they bring in about $170 of, of, uh, of sales a year. Like that's a sales, not even profit. All of them working to live in this little hut. I keep them in my consciousness to remember that if faith has any role, it is to charge us to be responsible to help to heal the world we live in. Now, every sensible person knows that war is evil. Every sensible person also knows that sometimes war, while being evil, is necessary to stop other forces of evil. If the 20th century taught us anything. And yet, beyond that, we know that we have to address poverty, we have to educate, we have to build relationships, and that we have to preempt the next generation of extremists from emerging as well. I was not so long ago in Thailand, as I mentioned, in Ghana, in Guatemala, in small villages where they couldn't afford school books. They don't have chalk to write on the board. They don't have pencils. They don't have role models in the community because a lot of their parents have to move to cities in order to support their family. And we see that actually the levels of crisis are actually multiple around the world. 
And so we can't point just to one faction or one group as the sole problem. One of our topics today of global terror, ISIS, in many ways represents the failure of the good to unite. It's the failure of factions to rein in their own radicals. And we see this in every faith today. And we also are reminded that the old hatreds of our religion still exist. They still exist. And our responsibility today, I believe, is to, to unite against them. And one of the greatest religious problems today is that we remain insular. We remain only among people of our own faith, not only our own faith, but our own denomination. Not only our own faith and our, only denom our own denomination, but those who hold our same political persuasions. <laughs> Right? And we only want to defend our own group. We want to elect politicians who are going to advocate for our particular group. We want to only sit and pray with people who are in our group. We have become too tribal, once again. As the world gets more complicated, we want to shut off that chaos and that complexity and just retreat to our quiet, comfortable realms. And I believe a major part of the answer today is the interfaith answer. That actually we need one another. We need to talk with one another. We need to build bridges with one another. We need to put our values into action together. And we can't just say kumbaya, we have shared values, we all agree, let's, let's hold hands and pretend like we're unified. And then rehash the old, age-old American domestic debates of abortion and death penalty and gay marriage and where do you stand and where do you stand. But we actually have to embrace productive discomfort. Productive discomfort by which I mean we have to argue with each other. We have to say, here's why I disagree with you, and I'm gonna disagree respectfully. And by doing so, I'm gonna be uncomfortable. But that, un the, that discomfort is productive because I'm gonna challenge you to learn and to listen, and you do the same to me. And then we have to get into the nitty gritty, where we take our values to lead through action. And this can't simply be faith-based, it has to be faith-rooted. That is to say, it can't simply be, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew, you know, I'm, I'm Baha'i, I'm Buddhist, and I also love humanity. But rather, we have to root this deeply in our authentic traditions and allow others to do so as well. And so I want to suggest today that the only threat today is actually not fundamentalism. Extremism and fundamentalism we can find in every faith, and each of us has a responsibility to uproot it from our own faith and to challenge them, but there's an equal challenge. And this may sound uncomfortable for us, but it is the relativism. It is those who actually are not extremists and fundamentalists, but it's those who simply say, I don't care. I'm indifferent to the challenges of the world. I'm apathetic to the suffering, to the conflicts, right? I'm just gonna point my finger at the fundamentalists, shake my head and walk away and feel great about myself. But actually in many ways, it is the good who see evil and do nothing who are a greater threat today. There will always be fundamentalists and extremists who rise up. But if the good people of our time simply shake their head, watch the news, and go to bed, and it doesn't actually keep them up, it doesn't lead them to act, then in fact we're in grave danger. For the problem is not going away. Religion itself is strengthening, for better or worse, globally. The numbers of religious people are rapidly growing, not because they're persuading atheists, but because religious people have more children than people who aren't of religious persuasion. This is true of, of virtually every religion. And so we must let moral light shine forth. And to do so, we have to be sure we fall in neither camp. The extremist says, I hold the truth. My job is to convince everyone of my truth, right? 
But the relativist says, truth doesn't matter. What's happening in the world doesn't matter. My role doesn't matter. I'm just one person. I'm going to go have some cake. Right? It doesn't matter. Now, I want to share, since I'm here to represent not only interfaith partnership, but my own faith, I want to share um, 10 unique Jewish contributions to make to this conversation. I have a lot to learn from other faiths about approaches to addressing global conflicts and crises, and I want to share what I believe are 10 unique Jewish pieces of wisdom, and you'll share how these correlate with, with your faiths as well. The first, and I'm going to give some of the Hebrew as well, if that interests you. The first is Musar and Kedusha. Musar is ethical and spiritual development, and Kedusha in, in the Hebrew Bible, it means holiness. And so this is about, if we're going to address issues, it means having deep reflective practices. You know, Martin Luther King, it is said, that he spent about an hour writing a day. Now, that hour writing wasn't writing op-eds or writing speeches. It was processing his own heart and mind and soul, spiritual writing, to actually reflect upon his own emotional and spiritual state. The other notion here is that the process of our leadership matters. Our own work of refinement matters, and the ends don't justify the means. We can't simply take out ISIS, so to speak, and kill countless innocents in the process you know, and, and plant seeds of hatred and destroy societal infrastructures. But hey, we got the ends we wanted. We destroyed this terrorist infrastructure. In the end, this wisdom says that our means has to be holy in addition to our ends being ethical. And so this is called tikkun atzmi, tikkun bayit, tikkun kahal, tikkun olam. We have to repair ourselves. We have to repair our families. We have to repair our communities. We have to repair the world. And we can't focus on just one. We can't simply work on ourselves and ignore the world. We can't simply address the world but ignore our own inner work. So that's the first. This first is that political change is quick, but spiritual change takes a long time. The Israelites left Egypt very quickly, but then they needed 40 years in the desert to process and grow before they could enter the promised land. Civil rights legislation was passed relatively quickly with the stroke of a pen, but it takes decades, and in fact, we're not even there yet, to actually enact racial equality, racial justice into society, something we're still working on. The second that comes deep from the Jewish tradition is the notion of machloket. Machloket means argument, disagreement. That actually, argumentation is good, you know, you've heard the old uh, joke, uh, two Jews, three opinions, which is to say that if you meet a Jew, they want to argue with you, right? Because part of the belief is that argument is good. We should disagree. We should embrace that. And what the root of that is, is tolerance, that we have to come together to have different views and build a culture of tolerance. The great advocate of the, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of pre-state Israel, Rabbi Cook, one of my great teachers, to the extent that we named one of our we named our son Cook, um, who has his philosophy rooted in Hegel, uh, an earlier Christian philosopher, and he argues that there is a conflict, a tension between between uh, uh, thesis and antithesis, and that leads to a larger synthesis. That in every era of society, there is a clash of values, a clash of ideas and ideals. And that through that clash, we reach a higher truth, right? There was a clash between socialism and capitalism. And through that clash, new models of, of, of political economy continued to emerge in those tensions. 
So too, when religions talk and debate, but through tolerance, we continue to have deeper understanding. The third notion is Torah Sheba'al Peh, that in the Jewish tradition, there's not only a written Bible, a written Torah, but also an oral tradition. And that oral tradition ensures that the written tradition is always evolving and being reinterpreted. And the notion that text can help us solve problems only if we allow for new hermeneutics, new interpretations of old texts that keep those texts alive and relevant. The fourth concept is radical empathy. In the, in the Bible itself, 36 times we're reminded to love and take care of the stranger. Because you were slaves in Egypt. And the model here of all of our faiths is that God is with the suffering. Whether they're in a hospital bed, they're lying in a dumpster, homeless, wherever they are, God is with the suffering. So if we wish, wish to be with God, we need to run towards the suffering. Radical empathy. The fifth notion is that Judaism embraces non-proselytizing approaches. Pluralism of the value of different faiths. That the ideal world, and this is ubiquitous throughout Jewish thought, that the ideal world is not all Jewish. That actually ethical monotheism, yes, the notion of promoting that, but not all Jewish or one flavor. That the uniformity of belief is actually considered to be deeply dangerous. And the notion that I need to convert people to my faith because my faith is true and other faiths are wrong is viewed as deeply dangerous and suspect. And so the Jewish tradition advocates that olam haba, the next world, the afterlife, is for all righteous people, not simply for Jews. If you believe in, in my approach, then you're saved, and if you don't, then you're not saved. So I think that's a fifth contribution that Judaism has to offer um, uh, is a deep-rooted pluralism. The sixth is that every action we do matters. Maimonides, the greatest of Jewish philosophers, argued that we should view the world in every moment as if there is a scale. And my next action is either going to tip the world towards destruction or tip the world towards salvation. Now, how many of us think that our next action is going to do that? Right? Not so many of us. But imagine if we lived our lives like that. If every choice I made could be the act that brings about the messianic age and utopia, or my next act will destroy the world, in a sense, because of my insensitivity. My wife and I recently, recently a month ago, brought a foster child into our home. And in a way, this was painful, because it was a way of saying, geez, in this state itself, as I mentioned, tens of thousands of kids need homes. Not to mention the hundreds of thousands, the millions, if you look at the world. I felt like, this is a drop in the bucket. What is this? But this is one human life. It's the old starfish story, but I saved this one. Right? At the end of the day, we have to remember that the, the problems are enormous in the world, but each of us can take one act and try to do what we can. And this means believing in the end of the day that there is more good than evil in the world. If we just read the news headlines, we would believe the world is going down. It's all evil taking over. Everywhere. There's murder. There's, there's extremism. There's war. Everything is going down. But do we realize that at every moment... There's a million hospice workers in the world holding someone's hand of someone who's dying. There are a million teachers at this moment trying to build up a young child's self-esteem who feels low about him or herself. Right? There are a million people doing a random acts of, acts of kindness. These didn't make the headlines. So I believe that the, the approach is that every moment good is winning. Good is winning and it doesn't make the headlines, but we have to remember that and be on the side of good. Number seven, seven is the notion of tzelam Elohim, that every human being is created in the image of God. 
regardless of their belief or conviction, politically, religiously, socially, that each person is equal and unique and has infinite dignity. This was not always true. Just before the Torah, just before the Bible emerged, the, the previous code of law was called the Code of Hammurabi. And in the Code of Hammurabi, what was the penalty if you killed your slave? It's a monetary crime. You owe the slave owner money. Because this is not an, a human being created in the image of God. This is a slave. And Iran came to the Torah and the Bible and said, what? This is a Selim Elohim. This is a human being created in the image of God. This is a capital crime if you kill this person. This is not human property, right? And also, that saying that each person is created in the image of God means that every individual matters, and thus the conscience of every human being matters. And so I want to suggest that more important than, than, than belief in God is the belief that God believes in us. More important than embracing, I believe there's someone in control of the world, is believing that someone believes in us. And to do that means we have to love ourselves and take care of ourselves and allow that love and self-care to pour out into loving and caring for others as well. The eighth is the belief in human development and, and, and society development. If you look at the early stories of the book of Genesis, to see how this plays out, just give one example. Adam and Eve deny their sin, right? Who does Adam blame? The woman. It's always the woman's fault, right? Who does the woman blame? She blames the snake. Right? So they both say, I'm not free. I'm just at whim of my instincts and my desires. I'm not free to make choices. What happens right after that? Cain kills Abel. And what does he say? God asks, you know, what's going on here? He says, am I my brother's keeper? So now we embrace human freedom, but am I responsible for my, for my, for my neighbors, for my siblings, for my family? And then what happens just after that is the story of Noah, where the whole society, the whole world floods. Right? And Noah doesn't really save anyone. He's what's called by the Hasidic teachers, Sadiq Impels, a righteous person with a fur coat on. Because there's two ways to be righteous. One is to put a fur coat on, and the other is to light a candle. If you put a fur coat on, you keep yourself warm. If you light a candle, you keep those around you warm. He was a person who went into the ark and saved him and his family, and the whole rest of the world was destroyed. Am I responsible for society? And then comes Abraham, and he protests God, because God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I'm also, I'm also called to be responsible for the, if any innocent people exist in the wicked town. People want to just wipe out ISIS and forget the innocent, for whatever innocent kids here or there. I'm not saying we shouldn't take the threat very seriously, but the innocents that are there as well. Abraham says, God, I won't let you destroy this wicked town if there's any righteous people there. Right? And then all of a sudden we, we move to, to Moshe, or Moses. And Moses then intervenes for a Jewish brother who's being hurt, for a Gentile brother who's being hurt, for the women being hurt. He intervenes in every conflict he sees regardless of their, of their commitments. And so here we see the development of the human being to say, yes, you are free. Yes, you are free to take care of your siblings and your neighbors. Yes, you are free to take care of society. Yes, you're free to not only take care of people of your own faith and nationality and ethnicity, but to take care of all people. Number nine is that we don't seek to simply give from a place of pure self-sacrifice, but that it's okay to give from self-interest. The old Hasidic teaching tells us that we should keep two notes in our pocket. In one pocket, it should say, you are dust and ashes. You're nothing. 
You're going to die in no time, and no one's going to remember your name. You're going to return back to the earth, right? Remember that you are nothing. But in the other pocket, there should be a note that says, the world was created for you. You are everything. You're the reason why the world exists because of you, right? This teaching says we have to hold both the humility, the modesty, that this is not about me, and also the sense that this deeply is about me. And so when we give, in a sense, it should be about us. We're trying to actualize our legacy and contribution. On the other hand, it's never about us. We're trying to, to help others. And so here I want to suggest that actually we don't die once. We actually have five deaths in our life. Our first death is when we stop truly living in this world. When we stop truly being alive, loving life, and trying to create an impact of positivity. The second death is when our body dies, the cessation of the heartbeat or the death of the brainstem. The third death is when they lower our body into the earth. The fourth death is the last time our name is uttered in this world. The fifth death is the last bit of impact we've ever had on the world begins to dissipate. And in fact, with these five types of death, I want to suggest that we have oftentimes very wrong approaches. We're afraid of this, so we want a bigger house. We want a fancier car. We want our name on a plaque to pretend like we're not going to die. We want to have permanence in this world. But actually, I think the spiritual approach is very different. That the spiritual approach to each of these deaths is actually to root ourselves in eternity, to root ourselves in the good with humility and with modesty. The tenth point I want to share, and the last one on this, is that in the Jewish tradition based upon Kabbalah, and by Kabbalah I don't mean uh, uh, the popular Kabbalah we hear um, from, some, from some singers out there, um, but actually the deeply rooted spiritual tradition, that when I, when I tie my child's shoes, when I put my kid's shoes on, I put one on before the other intentionally. Chesed before Gevura, kindness before strength. That the Talmud says we should always be pulling the, one, the other closer with one hand, in a sense, pushing them away with another hand. In a sense, there is both kindness and strength that has to come in conflict, of pulling people closer um, you know, to, to build bridges, but also pushing away around differences that truly matter. And so there's no answer today, of course, but simply that we live a life of toil, a live a life of partnership building, of trying to actualize our potential. And I'll leave you with the teaching of Pirke Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, that it is not for you to finish the work of this world, but we also cannot desist from participating. I give everyone the blessing, and I hope you'll give it back to me, that each of us, in whatever capacity we can, brings a little bit more light to our corner, a little bit more hope, a little bit more love to those around us, that we can actualize our potential through humility, through modesty, but also with strength, so we can make our mark upon this world. Thank you all so much.